It is again a glorious opportunity that we have this evening to come together like this. And certainly it would be appropriate on my part to express an especial appreciation to Gary Grizel for filling in last Sunday evening so capably. I know that the various comments concerning all of the Bible studies and sermons were lovely indeed, and I'm sure as uh, we can each appreciate the talent that he has and the gift that God has shared with him that he might be so well able to share it with all of us. So I wanted to again thank all of the individuals, including Gary, for taking such a good job of to, uh, delivering the lessons and the other things during my absence. As you might have noted again in the bulletin, as well as the information concerning the screen on uh, or the wall to my left, the lesson from tonight for tonight will involve an issue of a timeline, and since that particular issue is one that may be a little bit different. I'd like to spend just a moment, and at least at the very outset, to make a notice of some of the things that might lead to the importance of it. As we noted a moment ago in Romans 15 verse 4, when that was read, it still reads so interestingly that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The Old Testament is a marvel indeed. We appreciate that it is not the law beneath which we live today, as per the affirmations in Colossians 2.14, as well as, for instance, in texts such as Galatians 3. But we do understand that there are principles and timeless ones at that that are contained in the Old Testament, worthy of our learning, worthy of our contemplation, and worthy often of great examples in our life. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, we are expressly told that the things contained in the Old Testament serve as examples, meaning that there are things we can learn in the Old Testament that we should emulate, but there are also things we should not emulate because they were bad examples, examples of godlessness and iniquity and sin that we should, of course, not see embedded in our lives today. The character of the Old Testament, though, still is much in the following way. It was written a very long time ago, and sometimes from our perspective, it's difficult to grasp hold of exactly how long ago it was and the time and the setting in which it took place. Furthermore, the characters and individuals that were a part of the Old Testament, such men as Noah and David and Solomon and a whole host of other characters, those were actual people who walked the surface of this planet and God revealed his will to and through them in such a way that they can still serve as examples in one type or another to you and me today. Isn't in fact that the point of Hebrews chapter 11? When there the honor roll of faith is listed, the whole purpose of that was remember Adam, or rather Enoch, and Abraham, and the others that are listed, and let their faithfulness serve as examples for us. It thus is important for us to know something about the Old Testament, to appreciate a bit about the time frame of it, and some of the features and characteristics that are found within it. Roughly 15 months ago now, we looked at a lesson in which we considered a timeline of the New Testament. And so, beginning tonight, I would like for us to consider a timeline of the Old Testament. Now, this one, since the Old Testament is a bit lengthier, it'll take us two lessons, I think, to do this one. So tonight, we will consider a timeline of the Old Testament, part one, and next Sunday night, if it be the will of God, we will look at a timeline of the Old Testament, part two. As we look at this timeline of the Old Testament, 
Let me preface it by a statement similar to the one I used for the New Testament one. Namely, the dates that we will see and that we will refer to in the course of this lesson are approximate, but I think that they are very close to the actuality of the events as to when they occurred. But please just take some of them as being approximately accurate and approximately valid. As we thus begin our study of the Old Testament, let me point out that the dates I've listed on the left are again the dates as they are recorded in the time frame A.M., now that's not A.D. and it's not B.C. A.M. again is the Latin phrase that means anno mundi and it refers to in the year of the world. And hence, as we begin to look at these time frames and the various dates as I've listed them, we will count from the creation forward until we get at least to a certain point in the lesson and then it'll seem more natural to count B.C., and, uh, and thus we will count backward. And I'll try to point out that when we arrive at that point in the lesson tonight. As you can well imagine, we would certainly do well to begin at the very beginning. For isn't it true? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1, verse 1. And thus, in a period of six days, far back in the year 1 a.m., we appreciate that God fashioned this universe and everything in it. That means planet Earth, various other heavenly bodies. Furthermore, the life as it occurred on Earth. All were brought into being in that six-day period in the year 1 a.m. Along that same time, we will remember that God fashioned the Garden of Eden. And there in that place, he placed the man and the woman that he had fashioned. And it was there not long thereafter that sin entered the world. They chose to disobey their Creator. They chose to disobey the God that had made them. And by virtue of that act, they brought sin into the world. And of course, we understand the punishment placed on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent in Genesis 3 by virtue of that entrance of sin into the world. In Genesis chapters 4 and 5, we see the consideration of the line of Seth emanating in that man you and I recognize as Noah. Ten generations passed to bring us to that period of the man named Noah. And it's at this point we can well appreciate that that singular event that we seem to remember so well that occurred in the life of Noah was the flood. It occurred in the year 1656 a.m. That means over 1,500 years elapsed from the time of the creation until God brought that great deluge upon the human family, destroying all the human life except those aboard that ark that God had commanded Noah to fashion and to build. That ark and the flood, in fact, were so significant an event that not only did it wipe out the creation again excepting those eight persons, but in addition, Jesus and Peter alike both referred back to that event for two very good reasons. In Matthew 24, Jesus, to those listening on that occasion, very directly said, Do not forget the time frame of Noah, because just as they were marrying and giving in marriage, just as they were eating and drinking and living things up, they were living carelessly, and the flood came upon them when they seemed unawares and destroyed them. The Lord's lesson, of course, to us, as well as to those of that day, was watchfulness. Peter referred to it in 2 Peter chapter 3 in another way. He said, just as surely as God destroyed the earth by water, he is holding it in reserve until the second time when it shall be destroyed by fire. And that again leads us to note verse 11 of that chapter. 
seeing that all these things should be destroyed. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Proper, godly, careful living in which we understand the greatness of God's commandments and our importance of being able to follow them. Those kinds of lessons lead us to see that though that flood happened a long time ago from our time frame, it still has valuable information for us to note even till this day. In Genesis chapter 11, we notice the timeline here of that same dynasty, that same characteristic of people continues. This time, it is the line of Shem, and it ultimately emanates in a man named Abram. We well know how important Abram is. We probably know him better as Abraham, for God changed his name on one occasion. And as we appreciate, Abraham is the father of the faithful. The Jews even recognize themselves as being the children of Abraham. And today, ought we not appreciate that God fulfilled all those promises to Abraham, and he did so ultimately in the person of Jesus. In Galatians 3.29, the Apostle Paul there said, And if you're Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So when you and I, as faithful servants of God through Christ, appreciate the name Christian that we can wear, we are those that are the beneficiaries of the promise God made to Abraham centuries ago. The thoroughness of the greatness of that promise then brings us to the year 2095 a.m., now, it's true that God had called Abram when he was 75 years old, and that was in the year 2084 a.m. 2,000 years after the creation, this man Abram was called by God, and he was set on course to ultimately be the one through whom his descendants would bring Christ into the world. The redemption of you and of me, the salvation of the human race. That was the point of his calling of Abram. That was the point of setting him apart for the characteristic of being the father of the race of the Hebrews. In the year 2109 a.m., we find the birth of Isaac, the son of promise. After a great deal of difficulty concerning the fact Sarah had been barren, finally she, as well as Abram, agreed to that concoction involving Hagar and all oh, what problems that has brought to the human family ever since. For both the Ishmaelites and the Arabs came through that race of people, through Ishmael. Might we notice, in addition to that reference second to the bottom, the very last one is the year 2169 a.m. At this point, we notice that Isaac gave birth. I should say he and his wife were the parents of those children we know of, of course, as Esau and Jacob. With that point, we come perhaps to an interesting map that we might well see. These events that we have seen took place in the Fertile Crescent area of the world. And this particular map, I thought, illustrated it rather well. Though it makes no references to cities and to other places, it is certainly easy to see the major portions that you and I have noted in the lesson so far tonight. In fact, as you can well see, over toward the right-hand part of that map as you look at it, that's where the Garden of Eden was. So, over in this area near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, for remember, those rivers ran through the garden. But you'll also notice that Abram, when he was called to leave his father's house, journeyed first to the city of Haran, which is up in this area, and then southward into Canaan, into Palestine. 
And here's where those cities such as Hebron and others that he later came to inhabit. So that part of the world has been the setting through the first chapters. And that's where, of course, Noah's Ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, also in the case of that picture. Nextly, as we move forward in our study, we notice other years as they are now presented to us. Jacob, we well remember the time came that after he had supplanted his brother, that he in fact was hated by Esau, and he fled in fact to Paden Aram in the year 2246 a.m. While there he married, of course, and his first delight was Rachel, but his father-in-law tricked him. He got Leah first and Rachel later, ultimately two handmaids as well, and a whole host of children were born to him. We notice in the year 2277 a.m., the second youngest of those boys, Joseph, his brothers hated him and they sold him. Ultimately, he came to dwell in Egypt. There, though, God did not forsake him, but rather because God was with him, Genesis chapter 39, he rose to prominence and became second in command even to the Pharaoh himself. In the year 2299 a.m., we there notice that Jacob and his family all moved into Egypt according to Genesis 46. As they moved there, this time it was to preserve them from the famine that had beset the area. And even the Pharaoh in Egypt had had two dreams. And they each had indicated that following seven years of plenty, there would be seven years of famine. Here Jacob, and as well as the family, moved there so that Joseph can protect them and so that they can be sustained and nurtured through this terrible period of famine. That brings us to the year 2365 a.m. By this point, we notice that the time of Joseph had come and gone, for Joseph died in that year. That, according to Genesis chapter 50, will set the stage then for a king that will arise who doesn't know Joseph. This king will enslave the Hebrew people. They will no longer enjoy the prosperity if you please, in Egypt because they will be taskmasters over them and they will become rather rigored slaves having to build treasure cities for the Pharaoh and their lives will be hard and greatly miserable and greatly afflicted. And thus God raises up a deliverer. In 2434 a.m. Moses is born and with the birth of this young boy we find 40 years will pass. At that point we notice though reared in Egypt God has different plans for this one. He will be the one handpicked by God to lead his chosen people out of Egypt. And as he does that, he is hand-groomed by God. For though he is raised in Egypt, his mother is the one that has the opportunity to actually instill within him the customs of her people and the precious truth of God's will. So much so that he never forgets the lessons from his mother. And when the appropriate time comes, he in fact, is the one again that God selects to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And thus, in the year 2514 a.m., the exodus occurs. The ten plagues are rained upon the Egyptians, and in fact, the Pharaoh even urges the people to leave. Not many days thereafter, they cross the Red Sea. And we notice at this point in the year 2516 a.m., that they come in two years' time to Kadesh Barnea, they have reached the southern border of the promised land, and God would have led them into it then. But as you can see on the screen, his people illustrated unbelief. Remember, 12 spies were sent out, and 10 of them returned and said, We cannot take it. 
They are stronger than we. We are but grasshoppers in their sight. God there through Joshua said to them, because of your unbelief, you're going to wander 38 more years in this wilderness until your carcasses are strewn across the wilderness of sin because you didn't believe me. And so it was that for the next 38 years they wandered again in the wilderness, making a total of 40 years. And during the course of that time, all of those 20 years and older died in that wilderness except but two people. Only Joshua and Caleb were those believing in God, faithful to his cause, and affirming the fact that they could take that land. In the years 2514 to 2554 a.m., they thus wandered in that wilderness. That was the 40 years' time. As we close that screen, you'll notice that Moses died in 2554 a.m., the very year they crossed the Jordan and entered the Promised Land. Moses had sinned, you see. He had struck the rock in Numbers chapter 20 when God did not give him the authority for that. Due to that sin, he was not permitted to enter Canaan. He was, however, allowed by God to climb the lofty heights of Mount Pisgah and look over in it in Deuteronomy 34. But upon so doing, his life was taken. God buried him there on Mount Nebo in the very closing chapter of Deuteronomy. Joshua was selected as his successor. With all of that noted, perhaps it's fair to briefly look at another map. This time, you'll notice the Egyptian empire when it was at its height, when the children of Israel were in captivity to it. You'll notice how far it stretched, and the city of Thebes, a very central city in Egypt, is there noted for us to appreciate. Now, Goshen, of course, that land where the children of Israel especially dwell, it was much more here near the mouth of the Nile River here in the Delta region that was more known for the plenteousness of the water and the plenteousness of what was being able to be shown to them. Perhaps another map that shows us the route of the Exodus. As the children of Israel left Egypt, you'll notice they followed the arrow along the dark, thickened line, ultimately arriving at Canaan. And when they did so, you'll notice they didn't enter into Canaan from the south as they first had arrived there at Kadesh Barnea. They entered, in fact, from the east, crossing the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3. And as they entered the land of Canaan, that would be referred to in the New Testament more than once as a beautiful opportunity for us to think about crossing the Jordan River of death and entering into the beautiful climes ultimately of heaven itself. Looking further at the dates which follow, again in the Old Testament, we now come to appreciate that you might notice I have now switched to B.C. in the references to the dates instead of A.M. because likely, again, recognizing B.C. means before Christ. So perhaps now we're easier to appreciate counting down to the time Christ is going to come rather than counting from the time God created the universe. In approximately 1500 B.C. is about the time that Moses lived. So that's roughly about the time of the Exodus. And that, of course, also would roughly be the time he wrote those books of the Bible that were penned by him. Thus, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy were written in roughly the year 1500 B.C. That leads us to see that in the years 1450 B.C. to about 1440 B.C. was when Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan River. They conquered the land of Canaan and proceeded to divide that land among the twelve tribes. As that took place, it's recorded for us in Joshua chapters 1 to 24, 
And we might notice roughly not many years thereafter, Joshua actually penned the book that bears his name, the book of Joshua. Again, about the year 1435 B.C. When Joshua passed away in 1431 B.C., an event recorded for us in Joshua 24, we are reminded that the children of Israel were faithful to God during the lifetime of Joshua. But after him, there arose individuals that were not as faithful to God as he was, and leadership that was not as determined to lead God's people according to the commandments of God. And thus, in a very short period of time, God's people lapsed into unfaithfulness. They lapsed into idolatry, and they lapsed into sinfulness and wicked living. As we come to the book of Judges, we find in a period from 1420 B.C. to 1064 B.C., a period of 356 years in which God raised up judges over and again to deliver his people from their oppressors, those into whose hands God had allowed them to be turned because of their faithlessness and because of their sinfulness. That period of the judges, again, 356 years is a time period in which there are many figures that we remember. I didn't list all of the judges, but the Old Testament records 15 of them. The first one was a gentleman named Othniel. The 15th one was a man named Samuel. We likely of that group know persons like Samson and Deborah and Eli, perhaps best, but there were, of course, many others. As you look at that listing and what follows it, the very last of those judges was a man again whose name was Samuel. As nearly as we could determine, he lived about the period of 1180 B.C. and shortly thereafter. And as we can appreciate the life of Samuel, we know some of the books of the Old Testament were penned by him. Most of 1 Samuel, it seems, is written by him. Also, it would seem that likely the book of Judges in the main was written by him and perhaps even the book of Ruth as well. As he penned and wrote those books by inspiration, and we are still those that benefit from them today, notice that we arrive at the time when Israel demanded a king. They, in fact, pleaded with Samuel, give us a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. On that occasion, God granted the request, and he hand-selected Saul as the first king of Israel. And hence, I've listed Saul as the next major element in the point of time. Saul reigned as the first king of Israel from 1060 to 1020 B.C. Thus, it's a little over a thousand years before Jesus was born. As Saul reigned as the first king of Israel, his reign is highlighted in chapters 10 through 31 of the book of 1 Samuel. And the end of his life is a rather pathetic one. We've noted more than once in various lessons how that this man was so faithful early in his reign but later he became rather arrogant and prideful. He lifted himself up. He lacked humility. And thus, in the final analysis, God brought him down. And in the end, he took his own life. First Samuel chapter 31. There on Mount Gilboa, we might remember that his life, he, he took his own life, as in fact he committed suicide. But might we notice that following him was perhaps the most notable of the kings of Israel a man named David. After Saul's sin, God said, I'm going to choose one better than you. Those were the very words of Samuel. And this one who was now chosen by God as the second king, this sweet singer of Israel, 
as we will hear him described in 2 Samuel 23. This man was named David. He was described as a man after God's own heart. The thirdest of David's reign, perhaps appreciated in some of the lovely books also that he penned. The book of Psalms is due to David. As we read the 150 Psalms, we can see the heart of a man who made his mistakes, to be sure, but who, in fact, had a desire to walk closely with God. And even despite the sin of Bathsheba and the sin of murder, he had a penitent heart. And after that, in Psalm 51, we read about the desire he had to repent, and God heard his prayer and accepted him back as the leader of his people. You might notice I've mentioned both Nathan and Gad as prophets. We see that they, in fact, wrote the book of 2 Samuel, it would seem. Perhaps at this point we can notice another map. On Sunday mornings in our Bible study, we have been noticing the division of the land of Israel amongst the tribes. And this is another map that by color I thought might do better tonight to highlight the various tribal allotments and inheritances in the land of Israel. And as you look at that map, you can see that it's that territory over which David and Saul and even Solomon alike ultimately came to reign. Perhaps another map. Specifically on the right is the one I would draw your attention to, for that shows the extent of the reign of both David and Solomon. You can see that they, by conquest, expanded the borders a little bit beyond what the actual inheritance of the tribes had been. David especially conquered some regions toward the south, as well as considerable regions toward the north and east. The kingdom of Israel was growing under the godly leadership of David and Solomon, and as it grew, people came to recognize the God of heaven, the almighty nature of him, and the characteristic he had as the one true God. But as you notice those, we need to look further in our time frame as well. For after the reign of David, we come to his son, whose name was Solomon. David had more sons than just the one, but this one was the one that not only he, but by virtue of the choice of God, was selected to be the third king of Israel. He reigned from 980 to 940 B.C. This man Solomon was recognized again for his wisdom, for he prayed unto God, and God, in fact, was willing to grant him anything he requested in 1 Kings chapter 3 when he asked for a wise and an understanding heart. We recognize the wisdom that God gave him by virtue of the books that he wrote, the books of Proverbs, the book, in fact, of Ecclesiastes, as well as Song of Solomon, all were written by him. When we appreciate 1 Kings chapters 3 through 11, we then see the reign of this man named Solomon. And during that time, might we not forget that one of the major things that occurred during his reign was the construction of that immaculate temple. Remember that for years, servants labored in the construction of that rather ornate and beautiful temple. Some of the things about it you and I can well remember. The finest wood was employed. Much of it was overlaid with pure gold. It was certainly something to behold. That was constructed during the reign of Solomon again, 977 to 969 B.C. However, following the reign of Solomon, things took a rather dramatic turn for the worse. For Solomon's son wasn't as wise as he was. This man named Rehoboam, in fact, 
acted as a fool because under his reign the kingdom was divided. Ten of the tribes, in fact, made a petition of him, and he refused to grant their petition. As a result, they revolted. They seceded from the union of Israel. They formed their own nation. They were known as the northern kingdom of Israel. That left only two of the original ten, twelve tribes to comprise the southern kingdom. And I've listed some of those features here on this slide. That southern kingdom was known as Judah. We read about these in the books of Kings as well as the book of Chronicles. As we appreciate and look at the things stated about them, let's rather quickly note some of the things that we will perhaps expand upon a bit more in our lesson next Sunday evening. But in brevity, might we notice that that northern kingdom of Israel came to exist about 940 B.C. That's again during the first few years of Rehoboam's reign. However, it only lasted a little over 200 years. In 722 B.C., it was destroyed, taken into captivity by Assyria. And I've listed that for you about midway there down that screen. In 722 B.C., as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17, we find the mighty Assyrian Empire rolled over the northern kingdom, consumed it, took it into captivity, and perhaps it'd be worthy at this point to note rather quickly a map, and then we'll return to this screen in just a moment. This is a picture of the palace. I'm sorry, the temple, as some artists have constructed a rendition. This temple that was constructed again in the reign of Solomon. Notice how beautiful everything looks about it. Notice how amazing it would appear, as you can imagine, walking into that doorway as the priests had the privilege to do and see the things overlaid in pure gold within it. Notice yet another picture as well. This picture shows roughly the division of Israel and Judah. As you can see, here's again the word Israel, and here's the word Judah. Judah, in terms of size, was much, much smaller than Israel, for again, ten of those tribes actually comprise that much larger territory known as Israel. The capitals of both of them we will again notice more carefully in terms of some other features and things in our lesson next week. But you can see the dividing line, that large, darker line, about right here would have formed the division between those two empires. And sadly, sad to say, they did fight considerably. They did not, in fact, get along well at all. Returning then to our timeline, what could be said about Judah, the southern kingdom? We again found about the year 940 B.C. is when it would have begun the first few years of the reign of Rehoboam. You'll notice 940 to 586 is the duration of the southern kingdom. It lasted roughly 150 years longer than the northern kingdom. And there is no doubt as to why it lasted longer. They were more faithful to God. No nation, regardless of its military might, regardless of other things militarily that can be said, will long endure if they do not have a relationship with God. We notice the northern kingdom lasted much shorter because they were given to wickedness and idolatry. Not a single godly king did they have. The southern kingdom, Judah, at least had several godly men as their kings. People who tried to direct the people into following the way of God. Men like Josiah and Hezekiah and even some others. But as you quickly will notice, they too eventually gave over 
to idolatry. They eventually gave in to wickedness and to living in a way different from God had commanded. They came to ignore his commandments, and for that reason, God allowed them to be taken captivity by Babylon. Noticing with some care, in 606 B.C., the great Babylonian war machine made its first attack upon Jerusalem and upon Judah. They were very successful even then. However, the Babylonians were willing to allow Jerusalem to remain under the leadership of others, at least for a while, as a puppet kingdom. Then in 597, the people of Judah became a bit arrogant and tried to think that they could defeat Babylon when in fact they were unable to do so. So even more of them were taken captive in 597 B.C. Ultimately, 11 years later, in 586 B.C., by this point there had been no repentance. God turned all of them over to the Babylonian people. They were taken captive. And there they would remain for 70 long years, seven decades. As you come near the bottom of that screen, you'll notice then the destruction of Jerusalem was total. That beautiful, ornate, immaculate temple that Solomon had constructed, they burned it. They ransacked it. They took the people captive, leaving only behind those that were weak, those that were poor, those with few and little resources. To say all that maybe takes us to one final picture. Here's a map of that ancient world. I realize it covers so much territory it may be a bit difficult and challenging to see, but let me point out that the main words that I wanted you to note was, here is the word Chaldean. That's another word for Babylonian. That great Babylonian empire resided in this territory, and Assyria was even a little bit larger. The various dashes and solid lines, in fact, indicate Babylon on the one hand and Assyria on the other. When we come to this particular point in our study of Old Testament history and the timeline surrounding it tonight, it brings us to a point of conclusion. To draw at least this first Old Testament timeline lesson to, it, to its finality, we have come from the point of creation all the way to about 586 B.C. in our study tonight. That's a time frame of well over 3,500 years. As we look at that various aspect, we have seen the history represented in various peoples as well as nations that were used by God to accomplish His will in the human family. Perhaps in fairness, we should not depart far, though, from the thought that the whole purpose, objective, and mission of the Old Testament was to prepare the way for the Christ and to make the way for the beautiful gospel that was to appear and that was to come about. We are now roughly 550 years or so from it. We will pick up our study, at least in a way, about here next week. We will perhaps tie them together by rehearsing just a few of the elements from the latter part of tonight's lesson. But we will especially look at some of the other books of the Old Testament that we have not discussed at all tonight. And you perhaps have already wondered, well, where do all those others fit in? We haven't mentioned anything about the major prophets, nothing about the minor prophets, and in fact, precious little about other books such as Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We need to fill in the rest of that story, and that we will do beginning next Sunday evening with a lesson that will be entitled, The Timeline of the Old Testament, Part 2. Tonight, as we close this lesson, might we notice again that Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25 still say 
that the old law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. But when the faith came, we were no longer under the tutor. That again points out that these lessons and these various laws of the law of Moses, the Old Testament, they were a schoolmaster that bring us to the very feet of Jesus. They bring us to the place where we can understand the fullness, the greatness, and the completeness of the New Testament. In fact, the Hebrew writer points out very clearly that this new law is a better one compared to the old. What then does that lead us to see tonight? This better law is, of course, such that Jesus is its administrator. We will look at the rest of that history of the Old Testament, but tonight, have you humbled yourself before Jesus? Have you turned your life over to humble and complete submission to His will? He died on the cross. In the shedding of His blood, we see the fulfillment of that statement in Hebrews 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. When you and I appreciate the shedding of His blood and we contact it ourselves, that blood will wash your sins and mine away. Thankfully, we are told in the New Testament how and when we can contact that blood. It occurs in the obedience to the gospel. As one believes Jesus to be the Son of God, a fact pointed out in Romans 10, verses 13 and 14, as we thus repent of our sins, a thing commanded in Luke 13, 5, as we confess Jesus audibly and verbally in the hearing of others, we are then in a place to be buried by another in the watery grave of baptism. And it's at that moment, Acts twenty-two sixteen, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13, Ephesians chapter 2 as well. It's at that moment that we contact the blood of Jesus. Tonight, have you attended to that? Have you made certain of your calling and election so that it can be described as sure, Second Peter 1 verse 10? If you haven't, why not tonight? Why do you delay? Why procrastinate? If you have, though, obeyed the gospel, but your life has not been hid with Christ in God, rather you have failed in living faithfully to Him. Jesus, you know, does offer a second law of pardon. Come back in penitence and in confession of the errors in your life. If those have been public, then public needs to know of your penitence and your confession. If we could be of assistance in that way tonight or in your initial obedience to the gospel, will you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?